I take a moment to first consider the first three verses of chapter four. All right, what, what, uh, when you look at these, uh, these three verses, the, chapters one through four, by the way, are one unit. This is the last chapter that deals with Nebuchadnezzar and, uh, and his rule. And then we're going to transition to many years later when we start into chapter five, uh, way, way down to 539 B.C. Uh, when Belshazzar then is conquered by uh, the coalition of Medes and Persians. So we're seeing Nebuchadnezzar here. There's a number of kings in between these two. But here is the final lesson that God gives to Nebuchadnezzar. And as you look at this, uh, these first three verses should, uh, there should be a couple of things that stand out to you that are kind of odd, possibly, or at least one thing that's odd and then other things that are real interesting. So do you spot anything first off that is odd here? Yes, go ahead. <laughs> yes, yes, suddenly we don't have a narrative uh, coming from Daniel or the the prophet here, we're seeing Neb we're seeing Nebuchadnezzar himself speak in the first person and begin to describe what has taken place with him. Uh, what else is is unique about that when you see his message? Yes, Mark. Yeah, very interesting. We have a pagan king instructing <laughs> and teaching his people about the greatness of the Most High God. And that that is about as unusual as you're going to get. Uh, we, we would all be uh, absolutely astounded if any one of the presidents that we've ever had were to go on uh, the nation and say, I have to tell you about the one true God and what he has done and how you ought to serve him. We would all uh, just about pass out. <laughs> it would be amazing, especially this pagan king who doesn't have a great moral history, to say the least. And and here he is instructing the nation. Pretty cool, Michael. Mm. And he's the one that wiped Jerusalem out. Yes, yes. And he is the one who has already wiped Jerusalem out. Well, uh, I should say he has already. No, he hasn't yet, but you're right. He's going to, but he's already invaded and he's already taken away captives and he, he's done all that. And he is the one, yes, who's going to come in. In 597... Wow, uh, it's, a, it's a brutal invasion. And then, of course, in 586, the final one, uh, the temple's going to come down. All of Jerusalem is going to be leveled. And you're going to read about what his armies uh, have done when you read Lamentations. So do, do we know at all about the timeline of this compared to the, you know, the next conquest of Jerusalem? Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty tough. Uh, the last thing we, we read... Uh, as far as timeline, I think was back in chapter two, which was very early in, in with Daniel, uh, at the beginning of chapter two, the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know. I, did anybody see a timeline after that? I 
don't remember one. So, uh, you know, it, it's hard to say where, where this, would, this would land. So uh, is it possible that it could be like after he's already completely wiped out of Jerusalem? Nah, I would just be surprised. Neb doesn't uh, reign too much after that period of time. I, 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 would, I would think more that it would, it would just be maybe likely that it was even before 597, but I would say certainly before 586. And uh, uh, he, he, you know, he, he is, uh, <laughs> but he is super impressed. And he's already had uh, lesson number one and lesson number two, <laughs> and he hasn't listened. Uh, chapter, chapter two gave him a powerful image message that as great as he was, he wasn't going to last and his nation isn't going to last. And there's going to be another nation after him. He seems to go, la-di-da, uh, at least I'll be, uh, I, I, it's, it's not going to be in my lifetime and who cares. And then lesson number two is when he sets up his, his big God and, uh, and tries to get everybody to bow down to it. And we have uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and under the bed we go, as my kids used to say, uh, <laughs> uh, in the fiery furnace, and then one like the uh, sons of the gods uh, there with him, with them, and protecting them. He's not listening much to that lesson, and now he has the final lesson. It's going to touch him, and that's going to be uh, more than uh, than he he will <laughs> he will pay attention this time uh, in that. All right. Well, what what else? Maybe in this first three verses needs to be highlighted here. Yeah. Nebuchadnezzar says that God's kingdom will last forever, so he's finally acknowledging that his kingdom is not going to last forever. God's Good. Yeah, great observation. So, yes, he, he suddenly now is, he, he is totally sold on the fact that God is at least the highest God. Now, whether or not, and that's a subject of debate, whether or not Nebuchadnezzar has come to the point where he thinks God is the only true God, I think that's doubtful. But he at least recognizes that the God of, of, uh, uh, of Daniel is, is absolute most powerful, most high God above all other gods, and his dominion is forever and uh, will last forever and ever. So he, he really sees the power of God at this particular point. May be difficult for him to give up his idols, and we're going to see that a little bit in the next section, of course. Okay, um, any, anything else? Yeah. I have a question. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, th I think what he's doing here, chapter 4 has already occurred to him. I mean, this, the, the event has taken place, and he's beginning to write this apparently letter to the, to the, to the nation and all peoples of the earth and saying, I got to tell you about what happened. I mean, that sounds like that to me. Uh, when, uh, when he says it, in verse 2, it seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. He even sees it as a blessing to him, but he's now going to recount what took place. 
and, and then tell them why uh, that God is the most high God and his kingdom is everlasting. You might compare, by the way, verse 3 to chapter 4, verse 34 and 35 which is repeated, uh, the, the same, same particular point as Nebuchadnezzar comes back to his reason and he makes the statement that, that the Most High is praised and honored and he lives forever and his dominion is ever, everlasting dominion, his kingdom is endures from generation to generation. So he pretty well repeats the same thing he introduced his letter with and bookends the letter with that, uh, with that power. Okay? So uh, a lot of interesting things here, uh, especially the fact that after the fact, Nebuchadnezzar seems to be very, very thankful and, and to God, uh, really felt like he gave him something wonderful. Of course, he basically killed him and brought him back to life <laughs> in the sense of turning him into the, having a mind of an animal and uh, grazing grass, uh, etc. Mara. Yeah, that's right. 244 and 45 have already given him this message. Now he's going to feel it fully, but he's already given this message that God's kingdom outlasts all the other empires that are going to follow uh, uh, him. And uh, but God's kingdom is going to last forever. In fact, God's kingdom is going to crush all those other kingdoms. So this is, this is reinforcing that, that God is the ultimate ruler of all mankind and all powers on earth and, and in heaven. So, uh, yeah, very strong. Yeah, Julie. Yes, that's right. And that's, that's such a good point. Here, all through this, as much as we look at the pagan king and, and all of the pagan counselors and, and, and we look down on them, etc., you see the mercy of God in this. I, I'm, I'm really struck, and I'm struck by this more recently than I think I ever have been. I'm really struck at how concerned God is about kings and rulers uh, hearing the message of who he is. I mean, look how many times God does that. Uh, he does it, obviously, with Pharaoh. Uh, he does it with Abimelech. He does it uh, through Abraham's lifetime with various kings. He, he, he does it with the king of Nineveh. He does it with Nero when Paul is around and with all the rulers in between. And the whole reason that Paul is imprisoned is because God wants mess, the, his message to get to these higher ups. Uh, I, I think I would be just going... <laughs> Whatever, you know, let's get the gospel out to us peons, you know, let's get the, no, he's like, I, I need the rulers to hear this. And yet what chance was it that any of these rulers were actually going to repent? Well, not much, we would usually say, uh, but some do. And Nineveh's king does, which is astounding. Uh, and then you have, uh, of course, Abimelech acknowledges God. The, the first Pharaoh that Abraham confronts acknowledges God. Uh, so there's a lot that 
you do see uh, interesting uh, results uh, from. So, so pretty cool uh, picture that you see here. All right, uh, take a moment uh, quickly and, and uh, verses 4 down through verse 18. Uh, look over that just a, a minute and a half or so and see what stands out to you there. All right, maybe two or three main points that you would just, obviously there's the story. I think most of us got the idea of, of what the dream is about, but uh, what, uh, what, what is uh, a big, uh, uh, two or three big things that uh, should be noted here? Yeah, Brian. Does it seem like maybe he's mellowed a bit by this point? Because <laughs> okay. he, he doesn't make the wise men tell him what, he, what his dream Good. was. He, Good. he tells them and yeah. he doesn't threaten them. Right, right. He doesn't pull this uh, this kooky stubbornness like he did uh, before. This time he's he's going. Okay, I'm going to tell you the dream. Uh, kind of off. Obviously, I was kind of a nasty guy before. So let me let me tell you the dream, and, uh, and then you guys see if you can interpret it. Good, uh, Drew. What are you going to say? No. Okay. No. Oh, Yeah, yeah, there's a, you're, you're talking about the seven times? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we, we don't know how long seven times are. However, it seems that seven times is a way of summarizing until it, for as long as it took to get Nebuchadnezzar to acknowledge that God was above all. And, and so whatever those seven times are, maybe there's seven seasons, maybe there's, you know, who knows. But it is significant that it's seven <laughs> and maybe has nothing to do with the number seven, but the way God speaks about things. He didn't say um, 22 times, you know, or something like that. Seven's a critical number in God's uh, apocalyptic language. By the way, I mean, you bring up something interesting because you're learning from Daniel uh, uh, some, some apocalyptic type of literature that's going to be repeated in the uh, book of Revelation. So that is important because recognizing it here will help you recognize it more when you get to the book of Revelation. So by the way, it's called apocalyptic literature, which is basically somewhat of a misnomer. Apocalyptic simply comes, is the word revelation, to reveal. So if, if the numbers are symbolic, Maybe that doesn't help reveal anything to me sometimes uh, unless I can figure out the symbolism. But at any rate, uh, just so you know what that word means. But that's a little different how people t think about it. Okay, uh, anything else? Yeah. It Bingo. Uh, very, very good observation. Uh, so you see uh, there... In uh, uh, verse verse eight, uh, when he says speaks of Daniel, uh, he says Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and whom is the spirit of the holy God. So he's still acknowledging God, uh, his God, as his God. Uh, so we we're we're a little reticent to say, well, he's just a total convert. Uh, he still believes in in a in his own God. And uh, from which he named uh, Daniel. So good. All right. What else? Yo. I think 
could be off on this, but I see the tone when he already starts writing this Good. of the purpose of this dream. We, we say that he's backed up a little bit, he's acknowledging God, but then we see, I think we all understand that the king is probably living comfortably, uh, but to come out and say, I was relaxing my home and living luxuriously. Okay, where well, you're jumping, are you jumping ahead there? Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, he, he writes, right, he, um, I just feel like putting that in there just shows some arrogance on his part. Yeah, um, yeah, verse 4. Okay, yeah, ease in my house, prosperity in my palace. The reason I, I was questioning that is that uh, later he gives more detail about what he was doing when all that took place. But you're right. I mean, he, he, he definitely has a, uh, uh, he, he, well, he's expressing that I was messed up. I, I, I'm, I'm living in luxury and everything, and I'm not thinking about uh, why or who gave this to me or anything like that. And so, yeah, he's mentioning that, and he's going to reestablish that uh, later in the letter. Right. Very good. Okay. In verse 9, too, you know, it talks about how he's like the chief of magicians. Well, he's, he's calling Daniel uh, the chief of the magicians, etc. He's not calling Daniel. That's, that's just the way they would refer to it. But he's, he's referring to him as probably the chief because he's answered things like in the previous vision. Is suggesting that he's doing magic? No, no. That's just the name that he gave to all of them. Right, Julie. <laughs> That's right. That's my, that was my first thought, too. Why don't you just uh, skip all these, uh, these crazies here and just call Daniel in and get it, get it, let it to be done? But maybe he's trying to not show preference because the king shows preference and maybe that risks his life. Uh, people don't like that. People close to the king. You want to make them feel comfortable. So he just waits till Daniel comes in. And when it's Daniel's turn, he, he's, he's like, okay, here's the guy. I'm going to find out the answer at that particular point. All right? Yeah, Mara. I thought that maybe he already understood the dream. Nah. Like, nah. I mean, he was so afraid. It says that he was afraid. Well, yeah. And, I mean, if I was the king and I saw this dream about this wonderful tree and it's feeding everyone in the world or whatever, it's the biggest, and I would, oh, that sounds familiar. Yeah, and then it gets cut down. And it gets cut down. Well, I mean, he, he seems excited to hear it because he goes on to tell Daniel, you, you need to lay it out because Daniel, Daniel gets all disturbed. But apparently the, the dream is very vivid and visual. I mean, you, may, you may be right that, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar sees this and is scared to death that it is referring to him. But what exactly does it mean? Uh, if he knew, he wouldn't have called everybody, but he's, he's uh, figuring this out. Okay. Uh, yeah. Right, magician. magicians and, and things like that. For, um, for future consideration. Yeah, exactly. When Jesus is born, 
and those wise men come from the east. That's right. How did they know? That's right. And it may have been that Daniel. Yeah. And they taught how he's been here, and it was passed on generation after exactly. generation. Exactly. That there was one who would be a king who would be born. Yeah. yeah, I've always thought that was. During, this king, yeah. during the kingdom of Rome. Right. Right. I've always thought that must be true. So, exactly. He did have that title. The other one's a question. I wonder if in verse 4, when it says that he was in his palace contented and prosperous, or whatever your version might read, does that help us date this a little bit? I mean, when would he have thought of himself as prosperous and content? One of those times could have been after he conquered Egypt. True. And at True. that point, he pretty much reached. Well, he, yeah. That's good point. Good point. Yeah. And that might lend more to, possibly it was after 586. It uh, could lend more to that. But he's definitely uh, pretty content. Everything has gone his way. Uh, he's the king of kings, <laughs> etc. And he, he's feeling pretty high about himself, no doubt about it. Right. So that's when the dream happens. The actual fulfillment of the dream doesn't happen till when? A year later, right. So it takes a year for him to slip back into his old ways after Daniel gives him a warning about how he ought to be living and an extends some prosperity. But uh, it takes a whole year before he, before he actually falls back into his old ways and then the dream comes to pass. How about verse 17? What, uh, what do you say in verse 17 and... Uh, uh, and, and especially this seems to be uh, a, a purpose statement here. Four seventeen. What's your observation? Yeah, this is thematic for the whole book. It's everything that's trying to be get across. And notice who he wants to, in that verse. Who does God want every? Who does God want to know that that God rules in the kingdom of men? Who who is it that God wants the audience to be? The living. Not just Nebuchadnezzar. So this goes beyond that, which Nebuchadnezzar helps that out by writing this letter. So he definitely, God, God's intent is that this is going to be something that, that is passed on from generation to generation. This is obviously written down by the prophet and everybody is supposed to learn something from this very important event. Yeah, I, and I, there is a, there's a discussion about that is, you know, the old King James uh, translates that the basest of men. So are we talking about the humblest of men? Are we talking about some of the base, <laughs> basest of men? Uh, probably it's more true to say the basest of men. <laughs> you, know, you don't see a lot of humble kings. <laughs> David would have been one of the unusual ones, but mostly kings are, you know, they, they can be pretty rotten. 
and uh, uh, they think they're all in all and, and they don't care what they do to anybody else. So uh, God sets up over at the basis of men and that alone should um, cause us to ponder. Why would God do that? And we'll come back to maybe that lesson, uh, some of the lessons here out of that uh, in a moment. All right, take a look now at... Um, uh, verse 19 uh, down through 27, this, uh, this is going to be um, Daniel's interpretation. Uh, see what you can spot that Daniel uh, does that's, that's interesting here in this, in this interpretation. I mean, what, the interpretation is pretty simple. Uh, I'm sure you know that message, but what, what is it about Daniel and how he presents this to the king that might be unique to you? What do, you, what do you see now that's unique about Daniel and how he presents this to the king? True. I mean, the very words, let this not alarm you, seem a little counterintuitive. It's going to confirm the thing that he's afraid of the most to a certain extent. And this also makes me think a little bit of Jonah because there's this message that like this judgment is going to happen to you like full stop it's going to happen but then there's like the very ending note is you should still try and change the way you're living because perhaps there may be some mercy that's extended to you <coughs> so uh you mentioned jonah great how is jonah a contrast <coughs> how is daniel a contrast to jonah Right. Yeah, how unique. Here, Daniel has been taken captive and all this, and he knows how bad this guy is, and he knows that he's invaded nations, and he knows that he and his armies are brutal, <clears throat> and yet uh, he speaks compassionately about what uh, the king is about to go through. Uh, that, you know, I think, is very da Daniel's character uh, supersedes anything I can imagine in my own brain <laughs> in that situation. Brian, you're going to say something. I was just going to say, it looks like Daniel's not Yeah, he, he, he doesn't want this to happen to him. Exactly. Exactly. So, so that, that's, that's pretty unique. You see that compassion there, uh, <clears throat> and you see it again uh, down in uh, uh, verse uh, 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness in your iniquities, by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. <laughs> so you see that. Now here's a little instruction. Hey, king. Um, you've been a real rat. <laughs> you know, there's some things you need to repent of. Help me out here, because I see that, and that's him being supportive and being helpful. The whole, may the dream be for those who hate you, this interpretation for enemies, is that a positive or negative statement? That's a positive statement. So he's saying, instead of being yeah. you, yeah, I wish, right, I wish this wasn't on you, I wish it was on your enemies, okay. which really shows, again, his 
his care for, for Nebuchadnezzar for whatever reason, except for the fact that Daniel is so, his heart is so in tune with God's that he recognizes this is God's mercy here. And, and so as the messenger of God's mercy, he must show, also show mercy. Uh, pretty good lesson for us. Yeah. <coughs> Parallels Jeremiah's, what Jeremiah told them to do while they were in captivity, which is to seek the welfare of the city, which is Good point. Good point. I'd forgotten that. That's right. Jeremiah urges them when they go into captivity, seek the welfare of the nation where you are. I mean, after all, uh, you're going to live there. <laughs> you're going to have to deal with that. So you, you, you need to uh, seek that welfare. Very good. Very good. So you see, uh, see that with, uh, with, with Neb uh, Daniel and how he treats Nebuchadnezzar uh, in this. And of course, again, this is all going to happen uh, as verse 25 says, also verse 26, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. I can take you down. I can give it to somebody else. I can do whatever I want anytime I want. All right, what a uh, couple highlights from 28 through 33. We got to move here. 28 through 33 would be a couple of, take a, take a moment and what would be a couple of highlights here. Okay, so what's the big, <laughs> big key to that text? Yeah, he just struts out on his palace, looks out over his land, and he says, look at me. <laughs> look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. And God says, bingo. <laughs> That's what I was waiting for. I knew that arrogance had come back out pretty soon. Took him a whole year. <laughs> but uh, all of a sudden, he just, he just can't help it. He is just so lifted up with pride. And just like that, <laughs> uh, the words still in verse 31, still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You imagine him, last words he heard before he turns into a, an animal mind and, uh, and, and like, uh-oh, <laughs> I heard that this was coming. What, 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 what big, you know, 12 months goes by. Got a lesson for ourselves there? Kind of glaring? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, it's pretty easy to get lax, especially when things are going well. <clears throat> Wealth is coming in. Every no, no big trials. Everything's falling into place. Pretty easy to start thinking. Man, I just, you know, I look at other people and they're going through terrible things and all their trials. I must be just super smart because I'm able to simply avoid all of that. I, I can't believe how brilliant I have become. <laughs> and boom, the voice from heaven comes down and says, uh... Man, you shouldn't have said that. <laughs> uh, but it just, just time can make us lax and not be uh, considering like we should. So, boom, all of this happens. 
eating grass like an ox. You imagine all his rulers and his, his counselors and everything looking, looking out the palace window. Well, <laughs> there's the king down here uh, growing feathers and claws and, and, uh, and grazing and munching on grass. He's absolutely lost it. <laughs> what, a, what, a, what a scene. And uh, that's going to go on for quite a while until he finally comes to himself. All right. 34. Yeah, go ahead. I just think it's interesting that he wasn't was made a beast that's a lowly beast. Yeah. It's not, it made a lion. Now, it wasn't a pretty beast. Those <laughs> lions would have been the sign of maybe king. Yeah. Yeah. Great. It wasn't a beast of grass. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's not dangerous. I mean, it really, you, you look at it, it's hard not to kind of giggle about how God is teaching him this lesson. And uh, it, it, it's just amazing to see how God goes about trying to get a person. He, you know, he, I, I warned you in chapter 2. I warned you in chapter 3. All right, now we're just going to turn you into a grass-eating weirdo and, and see if you can get the point now. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's really unique. All right, what would be, uh, yeah, go ahead. Real quick, um, would he have known the Old Testament before the story of Adam? Nebuchadnezzar? No, probably wouldn't have known the thing. Uh, this, he, he doesn't know who God is, he, and God is now revealing himself. Uh, he, he has no idea, uh, especially when you see back in chapter 2 that he, he didn't bother, you know, Daniel. He didn't care who Daniel's God is. You look at it this way. <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar is going, whatever God there was over Israel, my God's stronger because I conquered them. Whatever God was in Egypt, my God is stronger because I conquered them. So that he would see that all over the empire. My God's the big God. Yahweh, who's that? I took him out. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you see the mercy. All right. So uh, uh, you, you see in verse 34, at the end of the days, so whatever that time period was, uh, Nebuchadnezzar lift up his eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honor him who lives forever and ever. And as we uh, read before, he really sees this. You notice those, especially those words in verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what, you, what have you done? So he recognizes himself and everybody on the face of the earth as uh, subservient to God. Uh, the words, and he does according to his, he, the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. What does he mean accounted? It's not like God is saying or that he's suggesting that God doesn't care about people, but they're accounted as nothing in what regard? Yeah, their their own will. Like God, you know, it's like uh, my will is going to be done, and that's what you what you see there. He does according to His will. 
So everything is going to be by God's will, and he is not going to allow man to supersede his will, is, is the idea. And, and man is nothing as far as power is concerned uh, before, before God. So verse 36, his reason returns to him, his counselors return to him. And 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So uh, that's, that's where it is. Let, let's just mention here, we've got just a few minutes. Let's just mention here uh, some of the lessons or, that we should get out of the text. I would rather ask you those things, but we literally just have about three and a half minutes. So first thing I thought of is how easy to forget God when everything's going well, which is basically what we mentioned. Uh, very easy to forget God when wealth is coming and wealth is, is being enjoyed. So uh, in America, and, and Jesus, of course, referred to this, very difficult for a rich man in the kingdom of heaven because the difficulty is I'm concentrating more on what I have and my own comfort than I am about God's cause and God's kingdom. Uh, Secondly, in good times, life deceives us into thinking we're in control. Uh, There's not a one of us who don't have a measure of that. And it takes some uh, whack-a-doodle trials (laughs) to get us to realize We are not in control. Key message of Ecclesiastes, there's a time for this and a time for that and a time for this and a time for that. And at the end of that, he says, you can't change it. And you can't stop it. And you can't make it not happen. So it is easy to get in this this type of thing where we think that we're in control. Uh, Our physical welfare is not an indication of our spiritual condition. Very, very easy to people do that all the time. I think God really likes me and really blessing me. I must be really good in the eyes of God because look at how many good things I have. I've studied with a jillion people who have that attitude. And you just want to go, you know, you need to brace yourself because that is not an indication at all. And then wealth, ease, and good times should remind us to repent. Nebuchadnezzar should have looked at all this world, just like Jesus' parable of the rich man whose barns make bigger barn, you know, bigger, uh, bigger barns and, and store everything, should have let him know he needed to honor God more because of what God had done for him. But that's not typically uh, what happens. And then God is the only one who's in ultimate control. And if we do not realize that, that disaster certainly awaits us. Uh, because uh, God is willing to do a similar thing to us as to what he did to Nebuchadnezzar in the sense that he's going to rattle our world and you need a trial that's going to bring you back to, uh, back to understanding. Submission is difficult when we don't know that God rules in the kingdom of men. Uh, if we really accept that, then submission. Submission isn't to things I agree with with God. Submission is a thing I don't necessarily agree with and rather not do. True submission uh, goes against my will. I have to submit my will. Uh, And then 435, God God does according to his will. We've talked about that. And uh, verse 17. So does verse 17 mean it's useless for us to to vote? (laughs) If God's going to set up whoever he wants over there, uh, is verse 17 saying it's useless to vote? I, I hear people uh, saying that. So I, w- I would suggest two things. And I, I, again, I wish I'd rather ask you. Uh, uh, I would say first, no, maybe God's working through us. 
Uh, lots of things happen because God works through people. So be the first thing. And the second is that uh, if God is ultimately in control, which he is, then I'm not going to panic when my guy doesn't get in and I'm not going to have, you know, uh, a tantrum and I'm not going to go around woe is me and all that because God may be using the basest of men to teach us a lesson and teach uh, the nation uh, a lesson. So the big message is the danger of pride in human achievements and uh, the New Testament escalation, this fulfillment in the parable of the sower, he actually get or the parable of the uh, uh, mustard seed, it's actually, uh, he actually gives this picture of it growing and engulfing the whole world. Uh, God does what Nebuchadnezzar cannot uh, permanently do. And so ch summation of chapters 1 through 4 God gives, Daniel 1, he's, you know, over and over again, God gives, God gives, God gives. And number two, God's eternal kingdom shatters all the world powers. And then chapter three, God is able to deliver his people from the hands of the wicked. And then chapter four, God rules in all matters of the earth, and we must humbly submit. So there's a, a, a unit here in those first four chapters. All right. That was quick, but uh, uh, thank you for your, your good attention. We'll ch plan on chapter five next week. Take time to, uh, to go look at that, and uh, we'll, we'll do that in, ch in chapter five.